Such an important text today. Let's pray. I need help to teach it faithfully. Let's pray that we would that we would each be able to hear it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that is with us right now. Uh, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who's come to save us and to bring us to you as children of God. And Lord, as we encounter this, this passage is so rich, so important, so foundational, we pray for your help, Lord. I pray that you would help me to teach this faithfully and clearly, and I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would, would speak to each one of us personally and open our eyes to where we stand before you, what we need to hear from this passage, and Lord, move in our hearts, cleanse our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, recently I've been noticing how middle-aged I am. And, uh, and at this point, I've been, a, I've been around a little bit, right? I've been a pastor for 18 years. I've read a few books. I've taken a few classes. I've had a few conversations. And I don't think I've ever encountered anyone, any author, any philosophy, whatever. I don't think I've ever encountered anyone who looks at the human race and says, nothing's wrong here. Everything's fine. I've never heard that. If you have, talk to me after the service. Of course, there are, there are many opinions on what's wrong with us and why. We could go on and on about that. But there is one thing we all seem to have in common. When we look at ourselves in general, we all seem to know something is really wrong with the human race. And throughout human history, we're... We don't seem to be getting that much better at fixing it. We have a problem. Okay, but what is it? What is it? Great question. There are many efforts at answering this, right? Some give, maybe you could call it societal answers. Uh, you think of, of like Marxism or critical theory. Societies divided by so, into social groups, oppressors, oppressed. And so what's wrong is that the groups in power are always oppressing other communities, That's what some would say that's the problem. Others give more psychological answers to what's most deeply wrong with us. They, they might say, um, well, do our, due to our experiences or our wiring, we have this internal alienation with ourselves. And so what we really need to do is listen to ourselves or love ourselves or invent ourselves or be authentic to ourselves. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's the fix. Still others will give you political answers as to what's really wrong. Problems, unjust laws or uh, unjust systems or corrupt leaders. That's our problem. Finally, many will look to religious, moralistic answers. We need to stop breaking the rules. We need to, we need to become good people. So what's, what is wrong with us? I wonder how you'd answer that question. What is mainly wrong with us? And by the way, those perspectives I mentioned, I, I think each one of them can at least give us a grain of truth. And I mean, personally, I believe our brokenness shows itself in many ways. There are many symptoms of our problem. But I also think that our text this morning shows us that each of those popular perspectives on what's wrong with us, they're, they're each far too simplistic. They're far too simplistic, so they can tear at the weed, you know? 
You ever, you ever had to pull weeds in a garden? If you just pull the leaves off, it looks all right, but what, what's the problem? It can't get at the root. What can get at the root of the problem? Well, uh, if you're new with us here at Fountain of Life, we like to work right through books. We feel like that helps us understand all of God's counsel, helps us to learn things in context. We're going back to our study through the book of Mark this morning, Mark chapter 7, obviously. Just as a way of reminder, Mark was an associate of the apostle Peter. Peter, obviously, was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. So this testimony, most likely, is from Peter's eyewitness account. It's written 30 or 40 years after the life of Jesus in context of chapter 7 this morning, Jesus' popularity is swelling. The crowds are massing to him. And you see here in the beginning of the chapter, the, the religious leaders are concerned. They come all the way from Jerusalem. This is a long walk. This is quite a bit of travel because they feel like they need to take some action regarding this Jesus character. And so they want to confront him on some things. We'll see in this conversation they do share some things in common with Jesus. Both Jesus and the religious leaders agree there's something wrong with us. They agree. Did you see the key word in this passage? There's a reason I did all 23 verses. The key word is defiled. It's mentioned in English, it's mentioned seven times in here. That's notable. Seven times. And it, it's meant to, it gives us the sense, right, that it's. It's recognizing the knowledge that we are somehow corrupted, that we're unclean, we're unfit, we're guilty. Bottom line, something is wrong with us. And we know it. And just by the way, personally, have you ever had it just haunt you late at night or early in the morning? You, th you consider yourself, you think of your past, and you just, you, you're wearing it. Guilt or shame, a knowledge. Something's wrong. So we get defiled seven times in this passage. We know something's wrong. However, though Jesus and the Pharisees agree that something's wrong, they have a very different idea on what the problem fundamentally is and therefore how to fix it. So this passage is so rich and important, I'm actually going to give it two weeks. So this is part one this morning. Hopefully I won't chase you away. You'll come back for part two next week. But this morning, Lord willing, I want us to see four things. Number one, we're going to see... In the Pharisees' proposal, we're going to see, I think, a picture of the human solution. This is what we always do, I think, to try to address and fix our problems. Second, we're going to see Jesus' verdict on the human solution. So he's going to let us know what he thinks about our efforts to fix our problem. Three, we're going to see Jesus' diagnosis of the core problem. He's going to tell us what it is. And then four, we're going to think about the remedy to the problem. So again, if you're taking notes or just to follow along in your mind, human solution to the problem, Jesus' verdict on the human solution, Jesus' diagnosis of the core problem, the remedy. So first, the human solution. So in Mark 7, 1 to 4, you see Mark trying to unpack to his Roman audience what the religious Jews of Jesus' time uh, we're really serious about. You see it in verse four. When they come to the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So for us as, as uh, readers in today's world, there's a disconnect, right? What's going on? Well, let's, 
let's unpack just a little of the historical context. Obviously, this is first century Israel, deeply religious society. Generally speaking, Israel believes in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God who created all things. He saved them out of slavery in Egypt to bring them to himself. And yet due to Israel's unfaithfulness to God, they're now in bondage again. And so they're waiting for the Messiah, right? God's promised king and the renewal he's gonna bring. Biblically true. But the Pharisees and scribes of this day specifically would especially believe that for that renewal to happen, the people have got to get back to religious purity. They've got to get back to religious purity. They've got to finally start keeping God's law as expressed in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We've got to keep the law. In fact, their, their mission seems to be, if we would just obey the law, we could take the country back for God. By the time of the first century, religious leaders had developed a massive set of traditions about how to keep the law. And it was later collected and called the Mishnah. Have you heard of it maybe? It's enormous. It's enormous. So it was considered a fence around the law. And what it basically did was it says, we want so badly to keep the law, we're going to make rules about how to keep the law. So the fence will be, if we just keep these rules, we'll be sure not to break the law. So maybe even the motive was good. We want to obey. But it accumulates and accumulates. And all of a sudden you have just seemingly endless details and directions for how to keep the law in every conceivable situation. And some commenters say, commentators say it came to be believed, actually, that God's law wasn't enough in itself. In fact, you would need the traditions of the elders. They were necessary to apply God's law, to clarify God's law. In fact, to many, the traditions of the elders became just as authoritative as God's words itself, if not more so. So it might be strange to us, but uh, I have not read all of the Mishnah. According to the commentators I read, a quarter of the Mishnah, a quarter of this humongous collection, is about religious cleansing and ritual purity. That is just to let you know how incredibly zealous these people were for this. Rule upon rule for how to wash and cleanse this and that. And Mark alludes to it, right? And, and even uh, archaeologists have discovered in, in first century Israelite houses, there was actually special pools in their, in their homes. And, and the pools were not for hygiene. And they were not for pool parties with the kids. They were for religious washings so that you could be ceremonially pure. For instance, if you went to the market to go shopping, when you get home, you need to bathe. Now, some of you feel that way already, but you're thinking hygienically. They're thinking ceremonially, religiously, because something they touched or someone they were near or some creature or some person or a Gentile was defiled, unclean. And when they came near it, they were now defiled and unclean. So they have to make sure everything is washed just right, because otherwise you're separated from God. You're not even welcome to worship him in the temple. This is what's wrong with us, they were saying. 
Ritual cleanliness became an obsession. And this, by the way, all that background's important because when you, when you begin to taste some of that, this is why the religious leaders had such a huge problem with Jesus, at least one reason. Huge problem with Jesus. You read the Gospels and you'll, you'll know Jesus has infinite respect for the Scriptures. See, the, the Pharisees and Jesus, they never argue about which books are in the Bible or not about which books are scripture, they know that's, that's shared knowledge. And Jesus, he believes the scriptures, we would consider it the Old Testament, he absolutely believes it is the word of God. He has huge respect for the scriptures. He has no respect for the tradition of the elders. He doesn't follow any of it. He hardly mentions it in any of his teaching. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't walk according to it. And so we know what this is like. Maybe you've had political conversations or something like this. When, when someone is just fired up and absolutely convinced that this is the issue, this is the reason, this, this is the problem, and this is what we have to fix. And when somebody else goes, I don't really think so. Well, now you're the problem because you don't see the problem the way I see the problem. Have you experienced that? And you can just imagine the Pharisees just being zealous for this and saying, this is the hope of Israel. And Jesus, and Jesus saying, no, it's not. And so that's part of their problem with him. They're deeply offended by him. They don't, he doesn't see it the way they see it, and, and they see him as the problem, therefore. And so you can hear, hear how they're feeling in verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? It's as if their question is saying, how can you even consider yourself a religious leader when, when your very practice is defiled? You're leading people astray. You're not submitting to the traditions of the elders. And it's very personal to them. This tradition is part of their identity and their hope. We start to look at some of Jesus' response. It helps us understand what's going on. Look first at verses 7 to 8. You guys, so important. Mark 7, verses 7 to 8. Look what Jesus says. You're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Okay, so, so here we're thinking about Jesus' critique of the Pharisees' position and I would suggest this is a critique to all human solutions regarding the human problem. See what you think. There's two fatal flaws, Jesus says. Two fatal flaws. First, you replace the word of God and his authority with a human-invented authority. You see that? It's clear, right? Verse 7, you teach as doctrines the commandments of men. What's a doctrine? A doctrine is God's word, God's truth, timeless truth, ultimate truth for all people, all cultures, for all time. That's a doctrine. It's the truth of God's inspired word. Instead of doctrines, what's now the authority for these people? The commandments of who? Men. Now, I'm going to pause here for a minute. Maybe you've said this or heard this before. Some people say, I can't believe the Bible because it's written by men. I just, okay. Is the Bible written by men? Yes. Very human document. Very, very human. Human concepts, culture from a 
from a person thinking thoughts, writing to another group. It's a very human doctrine. Okay. First thing I want you to see, you can't not have an authority on the big questions of life, who we are, what we're here for, what's the problem, how's the fix. You cannot not have an authority, even if you're sitting right here, you can't stand what I'm saying, you don't believe the Bible, you're saying the Bible's not the authority. Okay, fine. I would like to know, what is your authority? You have one. Some of us might have to say, well, it's my, it's my feelings. Or uh, it's, a, it's a podcast I listen to a lot. Okay, fine. You have an authority if, you, if you'll just realize that. And I, just, I also want to just ask you to recognize where that authority came from. Uh, the risk of being incredibly obvious, it came from a human. You're believing an authority right now from a human. <laughs> See, we can't say, I can't believe the Bible is written by a human because you're believing something else, which is also written by a human. The difference with the Bible is it's written by humans who were inspired by God. Now, I can't go in right, right now to trying to prove that, but there's so much evidence for that. And after reading it and preaching it and trusting it for 18 years, my, I just, you can't do this with any other book. This, this is inspired by God. And Jesus, who predicted his death and resurrection and then rose from the dead, he believed it's inspired by God. And so the first problem for the for the human solution to the human problem is we push aside God's authority and replace it with human tradition. In the same way, Jesus says, you leave the commandment of God to hold to the tradition of men. So even the Pharisees, they left the true authority for a false authority of non-inspired human tradition. And this is what happens when you obey the new authority human tradition, over the true authority, God's word, you now rebel against the true authority. You obey the new authority, you rebel against the true authority. We see this all the time. See this all the time. You believe in God? Yeah. You believe in Jesus? Yeah. Where do you go to church? I don't go to church. Why? Uh, My church is, I go on hikes. Uh, I just like alone time by the ocean. Listen, I, I like to pray by the ocean. I'm not demeaning that. It's a wonderful thing. You see God's beauty. Um, what's the authority on church? I'm just picking one issue. What's the authority on church? Well, if you're a Christian, I would guess the Bible would be the authority on church. And what does the Bible say about church? says, don't stop going to church, to just a paraphrase, right? Be committed to your local church. It actually says, we're not sure you're a Christian if you don't know and love your brothers and sisters in your local church. And so when someone's like, well, I'm spiritual but not religious, I don't really do church, what's, what's the authority there? I don't know, it's not the Bible. And so now, as we trust the new authority, we rebel against the true authority. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, he says, this is the issue with the Pharisees. And I think it's in here because it's always the issue. It's always the issue. It's not just for people who are washing their couches for religious purity. It's always the issue for anyone, any religion or philosophy in the world that aims at answering the big questions of life, whether that is the Pharisees in the first century 
or spiritual but not religious of, of our cultural moment, in all those cases, the truth of God's word is traded out for some human authority and the traditions of a group or a cultural moment. First flaw, wrong authority. We trade out God's word for human authority. Second flaw, you get a simplistic problem with a foolish fix. Simplistic problem, foolish fix. Okay, so back to the Pharisees. They're concerned with ritual washing so they won't be unclean, right? Is that in the Old Testament, something of it anyway? Genesis to Deuteronomy, is there anything in there? It is. There, there is something in there about ser- being ceremonially clean or unclean. It's meant to teach us about our alienation from God due to our sin and how we need him to make us fit to be with him. Yes, it's in there. Are there some ceremonial washings in the law? Yeah, mainly for a priest during certain ceremonies, but it's fairly straightforward. It does not need piles of books. And yet, look what they've done. They've made this smaller thing everything. That's what we do, isn't it? I mean, we can find things wrong with the human condition, and, and we're not wrong as we look out and see. We, we could mention a whole scat of things, yeah, but, but sometimes we make a real smaller thing, we make it everything. And Jesus is going to say, books of rules about washings and washing everything just right is not going to fix the true defilement. Because when you make a smaller thing everything, you now can no longer give a wise fix to that thing. Does that make sense? It's like somebody comes into the doctor with a headache. Really, he needs surgery, but the doctor just gives him a bunch of Tylenol. Well, now he has stomach problems, and the real problem remains untouched. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. We're trying to fix a problem here. Let's, let's really ceremonially wash, wash, wash. Well, you've, you have a simplistic problem, and therefore a foolish fix, and it's a burden on people. So Jesus has, we, we've seen a picture of the human solution. What are we gonna do? We're gonna trade out God's authority for human authority, and then we're gonna end up being simplistic in our problem and the fix. Jesus has given his diagnosis of the human solution. That's what he says we're doing. Now he's gonna give his verdict on our solution. And it's not, I mean, it is kind. Jesus is always kind. It's not comfy. Listen to what Jesus says. Verse six, he said of them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, what? Hypocrites. As it is written, the people honor me with their lips. Their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Wow, hypocrites. So the Pharisees, as they looked at their forefathers, the people of Israel, they would distance themselves from their forefathers, right? Because we see in the text how Israel kept falling into idolatry and then falling into God's judgment. And the Pharisees would say, not us. We love God. We're gonna keep his law. Jesus says, you're just like them. Man, that would have just, that would have made them so angry. You're just like them. You're hypocrites. But listen, he's not saying they're hypocrites in the sense that they're not sincere. They are absolutely sincere about what they believe. They are not playing. They mean to know and keep these rules. He's saying they're hypocrites in that they aren't truly worshiping the God they claim to worship. 
because they have traded out his authority for their own. Do you hear how huge this is? When you trade out God's word for another authority, you trade out God. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. And when you trade out God's word for another authority, it's a sign that he doesn't have your heart. He doesn't have your heart. I mean, I guess you could think of this just like a a relationship. You say, if I said to the woman I love, I love you. And she's like, why do you never, ever listen to what I say? Well, I just feel like I have a truer path, you know? But I love you so much. And at some point, if you were in a relationship with someone and they would not listen to you, but they said, oh, I love you. And I just find you by listening to other people and never listening to you. You don't love me. You don't know me. You don't listen to me. That's us with God and his word. But do you see? God wants your heart. He wants your heart. And that's just... I was, con- I was confronted even just this morning. Uh, sometimes I get irritable as a confession I'm just making to you right now. It wasn't in my notes. Um, am I alone? Does anyone else get irritable? Okay. And then this text is on my mind because I've been working on it, and I'm like, the problem's my heart. It's right in here. It's my heart. And then realizing God wants my heart. He wants your heart. Imagine if you came to, just to apply this to your life. Imagine if you came to church with your whole heart. Just church. You came to church with your whole heart. And the people here were on your heart. And the text was on your heart. And the songs, it was your heart. And the prayer was your heart. And afterwards it was your heart. Because you wanted to give God your whole heart. And yet somehow I can do it. I can do even good things by rote. Or cold on the inside. Can't you? And we just see God wants true worship that pleases him is your heart aligned with his word. You love him with all you are according to his word. And if that's not what we're doing, Jesus says, can we become hypocrites? So Jesus' word would have infuriated the Pharisees, right? And he he tells them actually, that their worship is vain. I cannot imagine. I mean, you could feel the tension in the air when he says this. (laughs) Things are about to catch fire. These people so zealous about their religious practices. Jesus actually says, it's worthless. Empty. It's nothing. What? Wow. And he says their fix is a failure. So here's the example, 9 to 11. Verses 9 to 11, take some work to unpack it. There's a tradition called korban. I think I'm saying that right. And here's what it was. It was an offering reserved for God to be given in the future. Okay, so this is according to the tradition of the elders. You could say, oh, I have this field. Maybe it bears some, it has some crops. And uh, I'm going to devote this to God in the future. Uh, Not yet. I I will give it fully then. But right now I'm going to name it. It's his. So in a sense, you could think, well, that could start with a good motive, right? I'm planning to give this offering to God, his people, to temple usage, whatever. Okay, great, great. 
So the rules was made, well, now that it's set apart for sacred use, you can't let anybody else use it for any other reason because this is God's. It belongs to him. It's holy. It's set apart. But until you officially give it, well, you can still use it yourself. And now can you see the loophole? All of a sudden, uh, Jesus says, this is how it's playing out in, in, in this society right here. Your, your parents get old and they get sick or maybe they hit poverty and um, they need your support. They need your resources. And one way to play it could be like, oh, you know, I'd love to help you, mom and dad. I devoted it to God. I mean, I can still use it. I just can't let you use it. We're, what? Well, I'm just follow, I'm following the traditions of the elders. Or even if they change their mind, look what Jesus says down in verse 12. He says about the Pharisees, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. So imagine this guy has devoted the field, Corban, I'm gonna give it to God, but then he's, my parents need help. I'd like to use the field to help my parents. The Pharisees would actually say, no, you can't. God would be displeased because you have devoted this to God, it's his. And this infuriates Jesus. Because not only has God, the authority of God's word been traded out for a human authority, but now the human authority, as we pretend to be good and righteous by keeping this human authority, we are now disobeying God's word and inevitably not loving our neighbor. So it always happens. We disobey God and we don't love our neighbor. I mean, what's the command? Honor your father and your mother. And a huge way to do this is when your parents get older or they have need, you care for them. And all my children said, amen. <laughs> you care for them. But look at what these people are doing. They're taking the tradition and being like, oh, I can't obey the commandment. Man. And then Jesus actually says, and many other things you do. He could have gone on and on. Look at the mess here. Wow. So here's, here's Jesus' verdict on the human solution to the human problem. Look, look at these things that happen. It ends up being hypocrisy because it's a false authority. It's a simplistic problem. It's a foolish fix. It, means, it leads to vain, meaningless living, vain, meaningless worship, and it ends up in rebellion against God as we disobey his word and won't love our neighbor. That's kind of a heavy sentence. Okay, so we know we have a problem. We've looked at the human solution, Jesus' verdict on our solution, vain. Now we're gonna see Jesus' diagnosis of our problem. This is verses 14 and 19. I'm gonna deal with this in more detail next week, but for now, let's just see the main point. The first thing he says, right, is the true problem is not outside defilements. We'll just make that plain and clear. It's not outside defilements. It's not something you touched and then you didn't wash your hands. It's not something you ate. I think we could go deeper. True defilements are not even something that happened to you. Maybe some of you need to hear Jesus' voice on this. Painful stuff, but we can feel very defiled 
by what others have done to us. Worthless, dirty, broken. Listen, in God's eyes, what somebody else has done to you, that does not defile you. It can't. It can't. It's not outside in that defiles us. Here's where it gets heavy. Verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, look. Look at verses 21 to 23. I'm just going to read it slowly. Can't unpack it right now. You'll get the idea. Quite the list. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within. Do you see that word? Evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Well, that, that list about covers it, right? Seemingly every problem the human beings face. It, there, there it is. It, it, there's the symptoms of the disease. But do you see where Jesus pinpointed the source of the evil? Where did he point his finger? Your heart. You know, it's strange. In my experience, people tend to believe two things simultaneously. Number one, the human race has humongous problems. You say that anywhere, everybody's gonna be like, amen. Number two, I'm not one of the problems. <laughs> we have huge problems and we're all good people. That's right. It's amazing, isn't it? You could wonder, where did these problems come from? Because we're all so good. All these, oh, those people, oh, they're terrible, and those people are terrible. That is not, hmm. it's not me. Do you dare to listen to Jesus? Where's the problem? Your main problem is not out there. My main problem is not out there. It is right here, here. And now you can see why it's so difficult because we all have evil hearts and we're like spurting on each other all the time. <laughs> my evil, my irritability, my pride, my envy, my all that list is, ugh, it's coming out and yours is too. And then it like, it hits on one another, it gets flammable. Because the problem's in here. It's my heart. For, biblically, the core, your heart's your core self. It's what you love, how you process and live in the world. And here's the problem. I don't love what I should in the way that I should, and I do love what I shouldn't in a way that I shouldn't. That's my problem. And that's what defiles me and makes me unworthy and guilty. It's me. And I have no excuse Yes, I've been influenced by others. Of course, I'm a human. But I can't ultimately blame the system or my past for someone else's hypocrisy. The problem is me. Look at Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10.
I'm gonna read to you Jeremiah 17, nine to 10. The heart is deceitful above all things. Did you hear that word? The heart is deceitful above all things. Our culture tells you, follow your heart. The Bible tells you, your heart is a liar. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I can't even process the issues of my own heart. So here's the big question. If I'm the problem, how can I fix myself? See, another fatal flaw with all these ideas, human fix of the human problem is we can do it. If we just got a little more religion, a little more education, a little more, a little more, we could do it. What if we're the problem? Well, that takes us to the remedy. Jesus said our problem is our hearts. You know, Mark sometimes leaves us in a lurch, doesn't it? Isn't it? It's almost funny how this text works. The problem's your heart, all these evil things defile a person, and we're all, I would be sitting here like, what do we do now? And the text is just trucking along, not gonna answer the question. Just trucking along. Well, let's go see a miracle next. And for me, especially trying to preach this passage, you're like, but you just gave me this humongous problem. You told me the problem is you didn't tell me the fix. Ah, uh, but then you step back and you read the whole gospel of Mark and you see how the whole thing is just like an arrow pointing to the back third, which centers on one week of Jesus' life, which climaxes in what? You know what? The cross and the resurrection. See, the great irony is the Pharisees worked so hard on the fix and they were so foolish about their fix and the fix was right next to them. Jesus is the one who changes hearts. He cleanses hearts. Just later, you read the book of Acts. In light of Jesus' death and resurrection, I want you to hear some of what the apostle Peter wrote, the source of this gospel. Peter grew up in a tradition-oriented, law-keeping community, but after Jesus died and rose, everything changed for Peter. This is Acts 15, 8. If you want to turn there, you can listen. Acts 15, 8. Peter's talking about Gentiles and, and, and traditional Jewish religious folks would see them as unclean. And here's, here's Peter talking about what is happening to them, unclean people as they hear the gospel. Look at Acts 15, 8. And God, who what? Knows the heart. You can just pause there and be a little bit afraid. He knows your heart. He bore witness to them. Oh, but who speaks to the heart? God does. And he gives them the Holy Spirit. What? God himself, the presence of God in you, with you, the defiled one, the unclean one, my heart, he would come there, he would come to me. He gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Verse nine, he made no distinction between us and them. And here's the key phrase, having what? Cleansed 
their hearts by faith. There's a way these dirty, evil hearts can be washed. It can be transformed. Verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through what? The grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. As you see the grace of God for you in Jesus, his perfect life, the only one with a clean heart, his death on a cross for you in your place, taking the wrath you deserve, his victorious resurrection and all that he's won, when you put your faith in him, that's in that process of how God cleanses your heart. So you're forgiven, you're washed clean of all the defilement. No more unclean, always welcome into the presence of our Holy Father because of what Jesus has done for you. And the new life begins. My, my heart still has, it still has dirty stuff in it, even this morning as I was confessing to you. But you know what? It's different than it used to be. Jesus saved me. Changed the core of my heart. And many of you, you're saying, he did that for me too. And now progressively, continually, continues to wash and mature our hearts so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, in light of Jesus and what he's done, we will love him and love our neighbor according to his word. So let's sum it up. We know we have a problem. Jesus tells us what it is at the core. What's the human problem? The heart. What's the remedy? It's what God has done for us in Christ. That's the remedy. So let's honestly confess our problem. Let's submit to God's word and trust his son. Looking to what Jesus has done for us, God will cleanse our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, how we need cleansed hearts, how the world needs to see the true problem. We're alienated from you. So Lord, I pray especially for anyone listening to these words right now. I pray that you would just, your Holy Spirit would show us the nature of our hearts. But even more than that, you would show us the beauty of your son and the grace you have for us in him that we would be so loved even though we are so undeserving and you would come to us and Jesus would die for us and he would wash us through his life, his death and his resurrection as we trust in him and that our hearts would be cleansed and changed. We would know we're no longer defiled or unclean before you. We're forgiven. We've made right with you. We're justified. We're yours. And then Lord, as we have new hearts through faith in Jesus, we pray that we continue to grow in having clean hearts and what we love and what we want and what we say and what we would do. We would fight the sin that you hate and love the righteousness that you love, all for your glory so that the world could see uh, how you save us and you be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.